Welcome to another episode of Braincast, this time featuring Professor Tom Baden, who specialises in visual ecology. In this episode, we talk about the projects within his lab, the complexity of writing grant proposals, and how he manages his time as both a researcher and co-founding director of Trend in Africa. If you're interested in visual ecology, open technology and community outreach, then give this one a listen. So so I'm, I'm one of the newer people in neuroscience, I guess, at Sussex. Um, so I've been here something in the order of six years now. Um, and I came from, from previous work in Germany, in Tübingen. Um, before that, I was, was at Cambridge for, well, everything, undergraduate and postgraduate. And, yeah. So it's been a while um, that I've been there. So I, I kind of know the British system, but of course, well, you can tell from Marx and I'm German. Um, and I, I think like a German, I must always be very logical. Right? You know? <laughs> so I guess, I guess that sort of... <laughs> The stereotype totally works on me, right? So, you know, the reason that I do neuroscience-y things um, is because I like logic. You know, I, I like things to just work and I get deeply frustrated if things don't work. So, um, brains are very complicated machines and they're the product of evolution, right? So you get, you get this sort of wonderful mix of a really complicated problem, but one that is understandable if you go into the sufficient level of detail, at least I like to think so. So, you know, like understanding the whole brain as one is, is you know, not happening, at yeah. least currently. But, um, you know, like you can look at two neurons, how they talk to each other. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Why is that? You know, so, so that sort of level of understanding is something that we can get at. And it's quite satisfying once you once you looked at a bunch of neurons in, in a given animal and sort of thought about, okay, what are these neurons trying to achieve? How did they evolve to be that way? And, and yeah, what, what would happen if, you know, say, say the environment changes and now the animal needs to do something new using those neurons? How, how would they have to change? And then, you know, you, you look at animals where maybe that has happened and then you check if, if what you think should have happened has happened. So it's, it's, it's all very nice and logical, but then the problem, the, the, the bigger problem is so vast that you never need to worry about running out of things you could try and address. So it's it's quite it's quite a nice place to work, I find. It's very future-proof, let's put it like this. Yeah. Not, yeah. I'm going to retire long before this thing is understood. But like, out of all the things you could study in science, why, like, vision ecology, what what about that intrigues you so much? Um, was there, like, a particular memory that you have that led you down this path, or maybe a particular research paper that inspired you? Not really. I mean, these things are serendipitous as far as I can tell. So, um, there's nothing special about vision that you couldn't do, say, with another sensory system or part of the central, you know, motors. Yeah, they, they all do computation in very interesting ways that needs studying. So really, it's it's about finding a niche that works for you, given given how you sort of stumble into the field. So actually, when I started my lab career for, which I guess would, would have been my undergraduate project, and then I jumped into a PhD in the same lab, that was actually on hearing, auditory processing in, in crickets. Um, of all things. So crickets, you know, they communicate with sound. This is why you hear them in the field. Um, and there's a reason for that, right? The one cricket screams and the other one comes and then they mate. Yeah. And that's sort of how, that's how the cricket do, right? So, and, and of course the neurons inside both of these crickets that either lead to the generation of the sound or that lead the other cricket then to understand what that means. You know, it's not just about hearing. You kind of need to... Yeah you need to understand what that means and then react appropriately. There are circuits in these crickets which actually don't involve all that many neurons, we think, um, that you can then study at a sort of single cell level. 
And so, so that's kind of how I got into it. And, you know, like I started on a single neuron and then you look at how it's different processes, you know, the dendrites and the axon and synapses and whatnot um, respond to sound and turns out that's not identical. You know, some bits of the neuron light up more than others, that sort of thing. So you can sort of look at a subcellular level how computation happens in a single neuron. And then you think, okay, great, but this neuron's connecting to this neuron. So maybe if we look at the next one and how they're connected, maybe we can learn something about how the circuit functions. Yeah. So this is this is sort of the, the, the sort of things that I did during my PhD. And it was a lot of fun. And actually I would have stayed, I just didn't manage to get uh, funding in that field. It's it's not so easy working yeah. working with non-model systems. So this this was in the in the early two thousands. Um, and at that time the well, I'm not sure I would call it a genetic revolution, but basically the time when these genetically accessible species just became so ubiquitous. You know, we're talking fruit flies, sea elegans, zebra fish, mice, um, and, and, and a few others, I guess. And so at the time, it sort of felt like you needed to give those species a shot because you could do things with these animals that you just could never dream of in a cricket, which weren't at the time genetically modified ever. So, um, so I jumped to the chance of, of switching model organisms, basically. And as it happens, I went to a lab also in Cambridge, but not at the university, but actually at this thing called the LMB. It's a, a research institute outside, uh, where they worked on a zebrafish. Um, and as it happens, that lab was interested in vision. Yeah. So of course, what you do, you turn up and you work on vision, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and, and that really is how I got into it. So that was sort of my switch from hearing to vision. I was in zebrafish at the time. Then I was there for a couple of years. Um, so the the way that you can work with these genetically genetically modifiable organisms at the time was just so revolutionary that the the speed at which you can get data um, was just so much higher than with the crickets, mm. right? So then you know you, you you do a short stint with these zebrafish, you get loads of data. You say, oh great, I can publish all these things, <laughs> and then you sort of compare to how painstaking it's been during a PhD trying to do similar sort of stuff without the aid of the genetically modified organism. Mm. Then so so it was it was very it was very obvious that staying in that sphere would be a good idea. Yeah. Um, it was also roughly around the time when was sort of the advent of optical imaging. So, you know, the fluorescence imaging, G camps, that sort of stuff. Um, they hadn't been around for that much longer. Actually they sort of came around the same time. And so I got lucky that I basically started my scientific career when those development happened. Um, so we were some of the first labs publishing in that field. And then that really gives you a massive leg up because suddenly you've got this technique. Mm -hmm. So everyone, well, not everyone, many people, of course, were doing sharp electrode recordings from neurons trying to understand what they do. And then along we come and we've got this G-camp all over, say, the retina of a zebrafish. And you can just look at it and yeah. get so much more information so much more quickly. So it was incredibly powerful. Um, so after that postdoc, I went to Germany because I figured I need to be in Germany for some part of my life. Um, so I <laughs> went to Tübingen um, and I was I continued in the field of retina. It seemed like a good idea. Um, but I switched to mice. Mouse, of course, is the next animal where you can do, you know, all the clever genetics. And we sort of did fairly similar stuff, except it wasn't a mouse. Um, and again, that was very, very satisfying. Um, yeah, and, you know, at some point came the time when I need to set up my own lab. So I thought, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to do that. And actually, that, that was that, that was a bit of a journey. I guess for most people, it's a bit of a journey. It's not like you you go, okay, fine, I've, I've published some papers. Let's uh, let's start your lab. And <laughs> someone needs to pay you, right? Yeah. So you need a job and you probably need a grant and all of that. So, you know, you start applying to stuff. And um, 
uh, you know, at, at the time I was quite specific about where I wanted to go. So I was, um, I was trying to uh, basically go to Switzerland. Well, Lausanne would have been ideal, but yeah. any part of Switzerland would have been somehow yeah. nice. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, you, you look at job postings and everything and they were, they're quite infrequent. There's not that many universities in Switzerland, right? And when they post one, then lots of people apply. So bottom lines, I got nothing, not even an invite. Um, and then at some point I thought, okay, fine, maybe Switzerland isn't going to work out. I'm going to try Europe-wide. Yeah. And um, so then there were basically two things that I actually got invited to. One was in Denmark and the other one was Sussex. And I ended up getting the one at Sussex. So that was that was sort of my first job offer. It's like, oh, yeah. I, should, I, should, I should probably take this after all these yeah. failures. So, I, you know, I, I, of course I took it. Um, and um, managed to get a grant, which was nice. Um, so that allowed me to set up the lab. And actually, originally I'd written... I've written more than one grant. It's not like they all get funded. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I, I didn't have much success trying to get mouse work funded. And the feedback that i gotten um, was that this is all well and good, but the lab where you're currently at is doing this work. What could you possibly do that this lab isn't doing? Right. That's, okay. a, that's sort of question, right? It was a bit, I don't know, I felt it was a bit silly because the field is... You know, there's, there's enough questions for everyone, <laughs> you know. But um, anyway, so then I thought, okay, great. Well, why don't I switch back to fish? Um, so I did, and I got away with it. And then so I had to turn up here and work on fish because that's what the funding was for. And, you know, yeah. and here we are, still working on fish. Yeah. Do you think you'll ever go back to Lausanne and, and work over there? Or? Well, who knows? Time will tell. I mean, this is, this is now a question of you know, major life choices, yeah. right? You know, now now I've got a family. Yeah. I didn't at the time. And, you know, like everyone needs a job or something yeah. to do. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. you know, you have to see what how life works out, basically. Would you mind just giving us a brief overview of the projects that you're working on at the moment in your, your current lab? Oh, Sussex? well, it's gotten it's gotten a bit out of hand. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so, you know, I, I keep telling you about the zebrafish that we work on. And we do, you know, about half the lab works on zebrafish in one question or another. And much of that revolves around color vision for many reasons. One reason is that, you know, in science, you have to find your niche. Mm. So if you um, if you just work on something that someone else is working on, Sometimes it gives you competition and then it's stressful and then maybe the other lab is faster, they publish it. and So it's a lot more relaxed if you can find a niche that people still think is interesting enough because, you know, of course you can always find a niche that no one cares about, but yeah. that's that's not good, right? So it needs to be a niche that's interesting, but also yours. Yes. <laughs> right? So, and Zebrafish Color Vision happened to be a little bit of a hole in the literature. We sort of mm. knew quite a lot about how the eye and retina in general work, but color wasn't something that had been studied much. And of course, there's always something, but, you know, so um, so we got into that and that turned out to be very fruitful. Um, so a little bit of context here. So color vision in animals relies on different photoreceptors that are sensitive to different wavelengths of light, right? So for example, in humans, famously, we've got red, green and blue receptors in our eyes and then the retina and brain make that turn it into color perception, basically, in ways that are quite complex, actually. Mice have only two of them, so they're dichromats, right? So they're, they're lacking the red one. The vast majority of literature, in vertebrates at least, um, flies and lobsters and whatnot is, is a completely different story, but at least for the vertebrates has been extremely focused on mammals, so mice and primates, basically, because, of course, there's other mammals, but no one works on yeah. them. They, they, they have a bit of a deprived visual system when it comes to color. So when you go back in evolution, um, anything that came before the mammals, which is still around, like fish, birds, reptiles, um, they 
they have they tend to have a much bigger investment in color vision systems um, than mammals, and that's because the mammals um, during the age of the dinosaurs, um, but that's so goes the theory, um, went um, well. Basically, dinosaurs like to chew on mammals because they're juicy, so yeah. um, all the big mammals died out. Um, the small mammals survived by going into a nocturnal lifestyle, into the forest, hiding in burrows, that sort of thing. Dinosaurs apparently were quite useless during the night because of um, because the ectotherms, right? So they basically need sunlight, like a yeah. crocodile today, right? A crocodile yeah. at night isn't the most scary thing because they, they're <laughs> yeah. cold, they can't do much. So, um, uh, yeah, so the mammals basically were nocturnal for basically 200 million years, which is a huge stretch of vertebrate evolution. and. At night, there is just not enough light to do proper color vision. So mammals lost some of their abilities of color vision. But then mammals are really the only major lineage that has gone through that bottleneck. All the other ones still have what was around yeah. before, which was four color receptors. So, you know, like if so birds are thought to have tetrachromatic color vision, fish and reptiles, amphibians, not not the sharks. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a different story. Um, and actually, jawless fish, some, some, some jawless fish, I suppose. So they're, they're the really old ones, you know, the, the absolute first thing to yeah. deviate from the vertebral lineage. Um, so basically, all these old species are supposedly have great color vision because they've got all these different color receptors and whatnot. And, but no one had really spent a huge amount of energy trying to work out how that's used by the eye or the brain. So um, us working in zebrafish, initially we just wanted to see how does a zebrafish do it. And then, you know, like we, we found all these things that are a bit different to what we think should happen based on mammal, okay. mammalian literature. Um, and then we started to sort of think, well, maybe this is not a weird fish thing. Maybe that's just how color vision works. And then the mammals are the weird ones. Very long story cut short at this point. Basically, the point is that instead of just working on zebrafish, we've expanded. So now we work on other species as well, mm -hmm. right? So we've got, we've actually got a bunch of sharks in the, in the lab. They're Baby sharks, they're yeah. like this big. I was um, say. But you know, sharks. Um, You're hiding them well. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got frogs, and uh, we sporadically have chicken to work mm -hmm. with. And we're looking at how their visual systems work, and in particular the retina in the context of color vision, exactly because if we can, in all of these species, basically see that they follow sort of the zebrafish trajectory rather than the, the mouse and primate trajectory, then the conclusion might be that color vision works originally in that way and then the mammals have sort of basically broken it when they were nocturnal oh, okay. and then sort of evolved something fresh which is a bit weird yeah um so that's sort of the one of the major ideas that i'm trying to peddle <laughs> let's see how it goes yeah. <laughs> um so what sort of like techniques do you use in your lab um, so the, the core technique, um, so it's, 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 it's a systems neuroscience approach, so that basically means try to record from neurons while they're doing their thing, right? Yeah. So the classic move would be stick an electrode in the neuron, but of course that only gets you one, and if you want two neurons, you need two electrodes and it becomes difficult. So we do that, but this is not our main technique. The main technique is more the optical way of doing it, right? So fluorescence um, imaging to photon imaging. Uh, calcium indicators. And, uh, by now, it's not just calcium, incidentally, these these things have evolved a bit, right? So now we can optically pick up other things, glutamate, acetylcholine, GABA. You can sort of just watch how the neurotransmitters fly around the nervous system. Yeah. And that is, that's incredibly powerful, right? Because you don't just look at the activity of some neurons, you look at the synaptic processes between the neurons, where really yeah. most of the magic happens at the synapse, as far as we think currently. So you had like Two, two fish. <laughs> Can you see how like their neurons are interacting with each other as they're close? 
buy is then you could do that in theory yeah. if you had two fish that care enough about each other too reflected in their brains right yeah. so for example what we can do is take a baby zebra fish they're really small and image pretty much anywhere in the nervous system and but our microscope has a field of view that's big enough to put two zebra fish in there so you can take one zebra fish here and one zebra fish here and they're looking at each other yeah and you can record both nervous systems mm. that works um so now if these two zebra fish had a reason to communicate whatever that may be um and some of the neurons and some of the fish would reflect that communication. In yeah. theory, we should be able to see it. The question, of course, you know, you, you've got lots of neurons in both yeah. these brains and they're all sort of firing. I mean, the fish isn't dead, right? All of these neurons are constantly firing and doing things and you flat you switch on the light yeah. and then some extra neurons are firing and then, you know, one of them twitches its tail and that because to make that happen, some neurons had to fire. Right. So you've got all of that mm. thunder happening in both of these brains <laughs> and then you trying to pick up the one or two neurons that are related to the fish talking to each other. Yeah. However, they would do that. I don't know. It's not like they wink. They don't have yeah. eyelids. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, let's put it like this. In, in principle, it would be possible if right. we knew what we were looking for. Okay. Um, so what sort of skills or knowledge would um, someone need to, I guess, work in your lab? Enthusiasm. I know it's a bit of a okay. cliche, but <laughs> skills. I mean, you know, it, it is so broad. Um, of course, it's always useful if they uh, have some prior knowledge with some physiological technique. Um, genetics helps, you know, like you, you need to genetically modify at least the zebra fish bit. Um, programming, always useful. Um, but you know, like you come to the lab and you're not good at any of those things, doesn't mean that you can't do anything, right? right. A, you learn. So this, yeah. this is sort of the, the main thing when you join a lab. You're not supposed to know exactly how to do everything because that'd be weird, right? You turn up with some set of skills, which is going to be unique from everyone else in the lab. Mm -hmm. um, and you pick up the bits that you can't do, yeah. right? And, and this is another thing, you know, some people are naturally good at this thing. Some people are naturally good at that thing. And so unless you try both, you don't know which one you are, yeah. right? So um, it's perfectly normal. You turn up at the lab and you try one thing and it turns out that's not going well. And then you try something else. No, maybe that's going well. And then yeah. you, you just you just have to follow what you're good at. Um, okay. It's well, it's more productive and it's the other way around. So it's not fun. You know, if you have to do something that you're bad at. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't recommend that. <laughs> I just, just have to be able to let go. I mean, but other, you know, so, you know, it all sounds still very technical. Um, and it's true, we do, have, we do have a lot of technical people in lab, we, you know, from including physicists and math folks, but also plenty of biologists. Um, but um, it, it sort of goes in the other direction. So, you know, I was mentioning this evolutionary angle and what, what I call visual, what is called visual ecology. So basically, you don't just look at what the animal does with its eyes. You also look at what the eye is looking at, which literally means sticking a camera in yeah wherever the animal lives <laughs> right so um there's some very serious scientific work that needs to be done right so trying to understand in the first place what is there to see um so and yeah we've, we've got people that are more into that aspect yeah. right so you know a proper proper ecology you know put on your wellingtons go into some pond and start yeah. filming it's, it's, <laughs> it's part of the job yeah. yeah it sounds like there's lots of different projects going on in your lab which one most interests you all of the projects in the lab have a lot of potential yes. and are equally interesting yeah. to me, of course. Um, I don't know, like if, if I had to pick a project that's maybe interesting to, to, to the listeners in particular, I think in part going for the animals which are non-model species might be the one that's sort of more engaging, I guess, if you're not immediately within the field, because you can sort of start, you can think very broadly about 
You know, when we work on zebrafish, we work on fairly targeted specific questions because the, the, the body of knowledge that exists is, is, you know, not huge, but reasonable, right? Mm. So you can't just discover a huge new thing because probably it would have been found. Yeah. Right? So what you find is sort of detailed mechanisms that make you understand something still very important. Mm. But whereas if you work, for example, on a chicken, um, well, no one's done it. Well, at least some of the experiments that we do, no one's ever done these experiments, yeah. right? So you do the experiment and that's actually the difficult part. No one tells you how to do the experiment. So you get yourself a chicken, you try to make it work and it just doesn't, right? <laughs> but then eventually you make it work and, you know, we're talking years um, and you've got data and no one's ever seen data like that before, right? So you look at it and it's like, oh my God, the chicken does things differently from what we thought it would do. Yeah. Um, then I, th I think that that's a very... That's great. That's a lot of fun. And then, you know, you've got this pile of data. You don't really know what it means and you start playing with it. And it's right. like, oh, could it mean this? That probably doesn't mean that. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's a lot of fun. So, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning a chicken. Um, so we've been recording retinal neurons in chicken. Uh, no one's ever recorded in a bird before, which is crazy, I think. I mean, in the brain they've recorded, but not in the retina. Um, and they don't encode color in the way that we thought they should. Um, I'm not going to go into sort of the details because that would be quite confusing now. But basically, yeah. you know, you come, you take this bird, you come in with a theory based on textbooks and everything. So mm. we're expecting this thing should happen. And then you record and it's just not true, you know, not yeah. even slightly. And then, you know, um, so those are those are great moments right? Yeah. Of, of sort of happiness, but also of major confusion, because, you know, like whatever you say happens. Mm. you know other people are going to work on that maybe and better get it right yeah. um, and of course you're not going to get 100% right because you never do and yeah. Um, yeah it's it's a sort of fun precarious thing to do what sort of popped into my mind when you talk about the birds because I don't know this might be completely wrong but I thought they could like detect like the magnetic fields of the earth is that anything to do with vision or is that something yes um, so it's, it's it kind of quantum in biology or yeah no, yeah, no, no yeah. You can, it's it's all linked i mean so, i mean that's the thing about biology right things tend to be linked yeah you know like even how fast an animal runs and what the eyes do is linked because you know if it runs fast and stuff moves quicker and the eyes need to be quicker so you know like things are just linked yeah fundamentally so yeah this magnetoreception that you talk about some birds do it not all um and it's usually the migrating birds although not exclusively um and it's definitely linked with the eyes, and that's been shown a while ago, actually. So um, if you, well, if you blind a bird, for example, by giving them shades, yeah. um, they, they're not very good at navigating using the compass. <laughs> so <laughs> that tells you it's the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, of course, people have invested major research programs into trying to work out how that works. And as you, men as, as, as you mentioned, so quantum biology starts mm. coming in. So there's funny quantum effects that people are speculating might be part responsible as, as the mechanism to even pick up the earth magnetic field which actually is a really hard thing to do yeah you, you know like us sitting here it's like it's, I, i'm not feeling north yeah right <laughs> I, you know, so i don't know if the bird feels north but at least yeah. it feels something such that it can orient mm. um and yeah the mechanism is in the retina it's been speculated to be in particular cells of the retina people are working very hard to prove each other wrong yeah um i don't think this is something that's settled in any <laughs> okay, a bit of a debate going yeah, on. Yeah, but seems. I think this is something that might end up being settled in the next decade or so. So okay. I think it's an exciting place really to exciting, watch. Really exciting, yeah. Especially when you like bring two fields of science that often fight together, you know, biology and physics and sort of put them together. It's quite yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, 
undoubtedly you must have a very busy schedule like how how do you manage your time and uh-huh. what advice would you give to those researchers who are particularly like overwhelmed with with their workload at the moment um managing your time yeah it's tricky um as it happens, and I never thought this would be the case when I, when I was an undergraduate or doing my PhD, turns out that sitting by the computer and clicking around is something that I'm actually not just good at, but that I like. And I don't, you know, that really would have confused me many years ago that this is a statement I would say. But um, of course, now that I've got people in the lab that we work together, the rate at which the data comes in is, is huge. Um, so my time, I don't think, is best spent being one more person in the lab trying to get more data. My time is more be- is better spent trying to understand, trying to help people understand what their data means yeah. and maybe write it up and then convince some editor of a fancy journal that they want to look at it. Um, so, you know, like when, when all these papers are coming out, it's not just me doing it, right? It's like yeah. it's, 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 I'm sitting, I'm skimming off the surface and maybe I write a nice letter to some editor saying, hey, we've got this very interesting yeah. story, would yeah. you consider it? Um, <laughs> So um, there's that aspect. In terms of managing time, I think the really where time issues really come in is, is, is where it comes be- between conflicts of the sort of things that as academics we're supposedly doing, right? So we, we supposedly do some research. In order to do some research, you need some money. Um, in order to get the money, you need to write some grants. So it's not like you sit in the lab and you do research. Most of the time, you're begging for money. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a big time killer. And then, of course, you know, by no means every grant you write gets funded. It's way worse than, you know, it's, 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 the rates are not good. Okay. So you have to write a lot of grants to get one. Then in order for these grants to be administered, uh, like someone needs to decide this guy gets a grant, this one doesn't. Yeah. Right? So those people are academics, right? So I, I sit on the other side of that table and I receive other people's grants and I have to read oh. them and I have to say this one's better than this one. I recommend this one's funded. Right? Okay. That takes a lot of time. The same process happens for publications. I write publications, but I also have to evaluate publications, mm. right? So that takes a huge amount. So all of that's the academic side, and that yeah. supposedly is, I think, in our contract, that's 40% of our time, which is ridiculous. Um, and then 40% of the time is teaching. So yeah. there's, you know, you have to prepare lectures, you have to do lectures, you have to do the marking, you have to, you know, all of that takes time. Mm. Um, and then 20 is what's, I think, good citizenship, which basically means sitting on panels and being helpful and in you know yeah. like all the stuff that is difficult to yeah. quantify um so in my personal case the balance is not 40 40 20 absolutely not um so the reason that i managed to get some research done is because my teaching load is not 40 percent um that however means that someone else's teaching load is about 40 percent okay right so there's there's a balancing act to be to be done um and um yeah, universities need to see how they can handle that, right? Because yeah. if everyone does only research or mostly research, then no one teaches. If everyone mm-hmm. only does teaching, then suddenly we're not a research intensive university anymore and then the students won't come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's a, it's a tricky balancing act. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, in terms of how I actually manage my time, I don't know. I don't really do that. I turn up, I switch on my computer, I look at my emails and the vast majority of my time seems to be spent either writing or responding to them. Okay. Um, <laughs> which also captures a lot of the research and the teaching and the administration load that I just described. Yeah. Most of that's just, oh, yeah, or, or you sit in Zoom meetings, you know, and then yeah. someone has an opinion and then you need to give your opinion and then they disagree and then that takes a long time. Mm-hmm. So um, there's definitely ways it could be streamlined. Yeah. Um, 
which also would take time to implement those ways. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's a bit of a catch-22. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't have great advice. I, yeah. I, I basically, I try to keep my inbox clean. Yeah. And if, if, I'm, if, the, if I've achieved that at the end of the day, then I feel this has been a success. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that moves me on to my next question. Um, you have been awarded a high number of research grants. Um, and I was just wondering, any advice on, on applying to research grants? And it's funny because you're, you're sitting on a research council so you see both sides of the story. Um, so what are the kind of common elements in someone who is awarded a grant, if there is any? If there's anything that's the common element, it's clarity. So unless it is completely obvious what this person is trying to do, yeah, you're not going to get funded. Um, but even if it is completely obvious, you still need to... Like, it still needs to be interesting, it still needs to be feasible, it still needs to be lucky enough to be selected based on who knows what. Yeah. Right? So there's, there's, there's a lot of noise in the system. You can't just write an amazing grant and say, well, that's obviously going to get funded. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. Right? Someone, someone will read it and it's like, oh, I don't get it. Or like someone will read it and it's like, yeah, I get it, but who cares? You know, yeah. this, this happens um, a lot. And so if you want to make sure you're going to get grants, you have to write more than one grant. I think that's the bottom line. But of course, you can increase your success rate by trying to be as clear as you can and really that means you know when you write like a five page thing which is supposed to be like a massive research plan with all the details and contingencies and god knows what no one's even going to get to page two unless they find page one interesting Mm -hmm. right so um your first three sentences need to basically tell the reader this is what we're going to do yeah Right, and then your next two sentences need to say the reason that you want to know the that not just us but everybody needs to know the answer to this is this. Yeah. Right, and so that that's really how you need to set up these these grants. If you start, you know, like half an hour just wobbling about mm. oh, this field is interesting and God knows what, and oh here's an experiment. Oh, I forgot to mention. Yeah. Then people don't care, and you're not going to get funded. Okay. Um, so I guess the <laughs> the punchline is try to do as little as few things as you can wrong. Okay, got it, yeah. Doing them right, who knows what that means, but there's definitely things that are wrong. Yeah. So I guess the ability to write well is is, is obviously a huge one and also to, I guess, simplify what you want to do down to its, like, minimal components, I guess, something along those lines. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, writing is sort of the skill that comes after you need in your head to have it so clear that writing it becomes trivial. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, you know, don't be afraid to use simple language. If you want to say, ah, oh, we want to see if A causes B, then you say that. Mm. Right. You, literally like that. Um, because that's your question. Yeah. And then you need to say the reason we want to know that A causes B or not um, is because if it's A, it means this. Mm-hmm. And if it's B, it means this. And yeah. the consequences are vast. You know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, you know, like when you get reviewed, uh, when, when, you, when you submit your grant, it goes to expert reviewers usually. But, you know, expert is a pinch of salt. Some people are proper expert in what you happen to do yeah. because, you know, just because the field is exactly that. Some people are sort of experts, you know, like if I write a grant in Zebrafish Color Vision, maybe I get someone else working on Zebrafish Color Vision to look at it, but there's not so many people doing that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get someone who works on Zebrafish Vision. That's still pretty close. Yeah. Or I might get someone who works on Primate Vision. Or I yeah. might get someone who works on drosophila olfaction because why not yeah. you know these people are supposed to be able to understand what i'm trying to do yeah. i'm supposed to find it interesting and then so depending who you get um mm. the opinions are going to be different i mean you need to write authoritative enough so that the 
Zimmerfish Color Vision person still thinks this is great yes. and useful, but you still need to write it big picture enough so that the olfaction guy also thinks this is interesting. Yeah. Right? And then these reviewers, they submit their, their scores and you get some number or some recommendation or some tick mm -hmm. boxes are ticked. And then there's a panel, panel yeah. consisting of something like 10 or 20 people, yeah. um, senior academics sitting in some big room around the big table, everyone with huge amounts of opinion, uh, you know, big opinions. Yeah. Um, and then they get to introduce the grant. And usually the way it works is that um, the person on the panel who happens to be the closest to your field is the one who represents your grant. So there you can be lucky or unlucky because, um, so these panels are much broader than the expert pool of reviewers, right? So there I'd be lucky to have someone who works on dosophila olfaction. That would be the closest person, okay. right? Then I'm gonna get someone, this guy works on consciousness, this person works on yeah. some disease, yeah. you know? Um, so they a priori don't care about it at all whether or not the fish sees color in interesting yeah. ways right so then um the closest expert has to be motivated to motivate my grant yeah they may or may not be motivated to do so they may think it's rubbish and then they're going to say oh, i've got this grant i don't think it's very good and then that's it basically yeah. right okay so um <laughs> When you write your grant, you need to think of that process. This grant needs to survive someone who works on something completely different, mm. who doesn't care about fish or anything. They need to still read this and go like, I get what this person wants to do. And it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, it's tricky. And the clearer you communicate what mm. you're trying to do and why, the better. And I don't know if I'm trying, <laughs> if I'm achieiving that here in this no, podcast. No, you are. You no, you're definitely are. I'm just wondering, like, do you get feedback on grants that are rejected or not? You do, but it's terrible, right? Oh. So first of all, they, they don't tell you why it's actually rejected. They give yeah. you some sort of formulaic answer. Oh, it was very competitive and unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. Da, da, da. You know, sometimes you get the reviewer reports that's um, vastly more useful than these formulaic responses that you sometimes get from the, from the funding body. Um, that means you see what the reviewer told the panel they would do. It doesn't at all tell you what the panel did with it. Yeah. And the panel can be very happy to ignore some reviewer. Like, this reviewer is an idiot. We're going to ignore this person. I'm going to go with this one. They will do that if they God. think there's a reason to do it, right? Or yeah. vice versa. Um, so um, sometimes you get a panel summary. The panel summaries tend to be a bit not very satisfying. And then they're going to give you reasons that to the panel sound convincing because they've seen all the other grants yeah. and then you get it and it's like, that's not a reason to yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, I should have been funded based yeah. on that. Yeah. Right? And everyone feel, like <laughs> everyone with the rejected grants gets these mm. responses and it's like, oh, this doesn't seem fair. Yeah, someone needs to create like a, I don't know, a kind of grant algorithm or something of how to... Oh, how to... <laughs> it's, it's such an ongoing debate. And you know, like, so it has been estimated and I don't know how reliable... Basically, you know, you suppose you get a hundred grants, then um, a minority of those are not fundable because yeah. I don't know they're wrong or stupid or not thought through or something. That's most of them are going to be good enough to be funded in principle, <laughs> but you can only fund I don't know twenty percent. Yeah. So suppose out of those hundred percent, you're down to eighty percent based on the ones that you can just discard. Okay, then you've got eighty percent. You need to shrink them to twenty percent. How are you going to do that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and then you will stumble on stupid stuff that really isn't the reason but it's like it's enough of a reason to put you on the wrong pile yeah right um 
I don't know. I've lost track of the actual question. <laughs> <laughs> you, no, you explained it beautifully. Because I was just asking what advice would you give to someone who was um, going to apply to Research Council for funding. Um, but I feel like you kind of covered all the Yeah, pieces. I think go to your grandma and explain what you want to do and why. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and if, if she doesn't care, then they yeah. won't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so my next question is, um, if you had a budget that was 10 times the size of the one you have now, what would you spend it on? Oh God! Buy an island. <laughs> <laughs> How much does an island cost? <laughs> um, so if I had budget ten times what I've got now, I couldn't administer a research program by myself. That would be that would be too big. Okay. Um, so the way, like, to to really answer that question would then be well, it would be an institute. It wouldn't be a lab. Right. So it would be an institute geared to try to find out some sort of overarching thing it wouldn't be like the institute of finding out if a causes b yeah that wouldn't be a thing right it would be the institute of i don't know in my case how brains evolve mm-hmm. i don't know that, that's a big question i find it interesting and then i guess you try to hire people who have independent research programs that sort of do contribute somewhere in that framework mm. um Actually, that would be quite a lot, you know, it would be a fun thing to do. Yeah, really fun. Now I just need to find someone to give me those extra 90% of money. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they'll sponsor the podcast. (laughs) Uh, My next question is, what's a commonly held belief about your role that you passionately disagree with? That everyone needs to be exceedingly clever. I think that's not true. I think you need to be smart, which is very different. Okay. Right. So How are they need, different? So if if you think sort of what we tr- traditionally think of intelligence, you know, like I don't know, like math genius, right? You see some formulas and you go, oh, easy, no problem. Yeah. Right. That's one form of intelligence, but it's it's very specific, right? If you have that form of intelligence, uh, you're socially not good and you're not good at seeing the big picture mm-hmm. and everything, then your work may be amazing, but no one will ever know about it. Yeah. And maybe no one will ever hire you to do the work in the first place, right? So. Um, on the other hand, you can be like amazing, you know, like this is thing, the emotional um, quotient as opposed to the intelligent quotient. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it in a number, right? Yeah. But basically, if you're good with people, yeah. if you're charismatic, that sort of thing, it's incredibly helpful. And you see it, right? The really successful scientists yeah. are charismatic, usually, unless they got super lucky and like found something so amazing yes. that they got away without being charismatic, yeah. you know? Um, you need a, a, a good portfolio of intelligence. You need to okay. like, be good with people. You need to be reasonably competent at doing yeah. what you do. But you, know, you don't need to be the genius because the genius is the person in the lab actually doing the work. Right. Right? Whereas if you run a research program, um, well, and, and, you know, those people don't need to be geniuses either. Right? Yeah. But the point is, like, if you need someone who's amazing at this one thing, you can yeah. probably find them. Okay. Right? And then you, so that's how you build a research team. There's a reason that people don't work alone, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So if you're coordinating a research program, then you need to be the person who recognizes that that person is great at this and this person is great at that. And I don't need any of these skills. I just need to know that this guy is good and this guy is yeah. good. Right? And then delegate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or encourage them to work together and yes. then magic happens. And, you know. So um, that is the sort of thing that I think is useful for being able to run a lab. Unfortunately, it's not the thing that gets you there. <laughs> The thing that gets you there is being the person in the lab who achieves amazing things. Um, yeah. And there is, there's so many factors that contribute to that. One is, uh, one factor is all, is, is that whole same portfolio, right? But it's, it's only, you, you need, 
you need to be lucky that yeah. the research that you end up choosing um, ends up being interesting, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You can be really good at something, but you get unlucky, right? Yeah. Um, if that happens, it happens to everyone, it happened to me, certainly multiple times in my career, you need to be able to see what I'm currently doing isn't going to get me where I'm going to, where I need mm -hmm. to be. And then you just need to be able to drop it and do something else, right? You know, I, in my PhD, I had a, I had a, a time, it was about six months. I mean, it's, you know, like people have lost years on projects yeah. that don't work. So six months is nothing. But, you know, you know, I, I was a little PhD student. I didn't know any better. And, you know, like I was doing this thing for six months. I was trying to get this technique to work and it just wasn't working. And, you know, at some point my supervisor said, maybe this is going to work in two years. But you could just do this, which we know works. Okay. And then so he basically switched me to a different project and yeah. immediately things work better. So you, you just need to either have someone ideally <laughs> tells you these things. Yeah. Or you need to realize it yourself, ideally both. Mm. Um, so that's one skill. And of course, you need to be competent at the work that you end up doing. So you need to be able to distinguish these things and sort of decide for yourself, okay, this is, I like this and I'm good at this, therefore I'm doing it. Yeah. And I think if you follow that route, you... Well, set up for success is always a terrible one because you can still be unlucky. Yeah. But at least that's that's what I would try to achieve. Okay. Yeah. What would you say are your strengths and your weaknesses? I don't know. I've gotten better at seeing the big picture. You know, yeah. I've got some traits that are both helpful and unhelpful. So, for example, I'm incredibly impatient, which means I get stuff done really quickly if I want to. But it also means that if something is too hard, I'm not even going to try. Yeah. <laughs> right? So um, whether or not that's a good thing, yeah. in the right context, it can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're the founding director of um, Trend in Africa. And can you just tell us a little bit about Trend and what's been the most challenging and rewarding moments when running a non-profit organization? Okay. Um, yeah. So this, this is a whole different thing. So um, Trend stands for Teaching and Research in Natural Sciences for Development in Africa. It's just a fancy acronym, Trend, so it works a bit nicer. And basically, it's a project that wasn't cooked up by me. It was cooked up by, um, by my co-founder, um, Lucia Prieto. She was finishing her PhD um, in a conference. She had met previously a professor from Uganda, Sadiq Yusuf, who's the third founder of this organization. And they, they basically were chatting and they worked out that running neuroscience-type training courses, like targeted three-week training at an African university, is something that's incredibly rarely done. Mm but which would be very useful. I, I, I joined that course together with, with another uh, three scientists, also from, from the UK. The, the feedback that we got from the students was that this was, you know, was a big deal for them. That was like really helpful, you know, lo lots of positive feedback. Yeah, it's very nice. And yeah. you sort of stand there and think, is this really sort of where we're gonna leave it? Yeah. Um, so we thought, let's not leave it at this. Um, so we sort of informed ourselves a little bit and we found it this NGO, which was actually surprisingly easy. It's just a bit of paperwork. And then then we had this, this umbrella, we had like a piece of paper that said, you are running this charity now. <laughs> and the charity was basically the three of us with no yeah. experience. <laughs> and in parallel, of course, uh, we set up a website, as you do. Um, and it turns out that when you have a website, that's when, when magic really happens because people just find you. It's really weird, mm. right? So you put this thing, oh, we're doing this teaching thing in Africa. Mm -hmm. It's going to be great. And then suddenly you get like an email from someone in New uh -huh. Zealand going, you know, I've been thinking about going to Africa teaching yeah. some neuroscience. What are you? <laughs> and then it's like, yeah, why don't you come? Mm. Um, so it sort of grew out of that. Um, and that really has been the spirit all along so that we get volunteers that find us. We don't find them. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they say, I've got this particular set of skills, what do you think? Yeah. Right, And then we, we sort of try to make it all work. Yeah. It's like, oh, we don't have a project right now, but this person also asked, why don't you talk to this person, yeah. do something together, and then, yeah, it's going to be great. It must be lovely to manage that. I mean, just it's, it's been, meet so many people. and yeah. Like, yeah. So it, it has been a lot of fun. And it's it really grew kind of both organically and exponentially. So it's, it's quite a bit bigger now, to the point that we finally managed to find some money to hire someone. So we've got a coordinator now, Samira. She actually works at Sussex as well. Yeah. And, and there's quite a lot of courses where neither Lu- no, Lucia nor I, we don't go to them, right? They happen, yeah. but it's sort of, they happen whether or not we do anything. Okay. So, so it's gotten to that stage and that really is lovely. But the reason they happen is because other people, volunteers, think, okay, I would like to run a course. What do I need to do? And we say, well, you need a bit of money, you need a partner university, da, 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 da. Yeah. We sort of guide them and then okay. they do it. Yeah. And... And it works. It's just so nice. It sort of just runs itself, I guess. It, it does. Just, it, it, yeah. it's, well, I mean, you still need to coordinate it, mm. but that's what Samira's now doing. So this is great. But that also means that Lucia and I um, now have the... We can sit back and do the big picture stuff, right? So, for example, you know, like the very first course, we had a few hundred pounds. And we, yeah. You know, and then the second course, we had a few thousand pounds. And it was, uh, you know, <laughs> and now we're getting to the point, okay, well, a few thousand pounds isn't going to get us further, mm-hmm. right? It's just going to give us a little course. What we need is funding for the next five years. What does that cost? I don't know, a million. Who knows, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you're just pulling a number out of my hat. So now Lucia and I can sit back and say, okay, who's got a million? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Who can we talk to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And that's the sort of, that's what we're currently trying to do. We're basically yeah. trying to find big investment. Investment is the wrong word funders, mm. philanthropists or grant agencies or God knows what, people that want to support something like this. So yeah, I'm sure someone's listening to the podcast and is inspired at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I guess all your writing all your grants comes useful for something like that. It right? really does actually, yeah. and, uh, but vice versa as well, you know. Yeah. Um, I think I think my scientific career has strongly benefited from, from the work in Africa in, in so many, well A, your CV looks nicer, so you stand out. Um, can't can't ignore that little leg yeah. up, um, but also because I communicate when I'm in Africa um, with African scientists who they don't care about zebrafish television either, right? They care about whatever problem they're working on. So I'm forced to interact with people who work completely different, not just disciplines, but in a different cultural context. Mm-hmm. And I think you get better at well talking one thing, but also listening. You know, understanding mm-hmm. what someone's trying to do, um, and that's really something that. But no one teaches you that. You just sort of have yeah. to pick it up. I guess it kind of right? like opens up your own mind on your own work yeah. in a way because you're having to look at the bigger picture for for, at, um, for someone else's work if, if that exactly. makes sense. Yeah. So then, um, yeah, I do want to ask you though. Um, so I don't know if you know Sam Sam Harris. Have you heard of him, the neuroscientist? Uh, no. no. Anyway, he's got this um, brilliant meditation app called Waking Up. Okay. Um, and in it, um, he was talking about like the neuroscience of consciousness and like what does color mean like what does the color blue or green represent you know what is it from a kind of philosophical standpoint and as like a lot of your work substantially involves like color and color vision studying that in depth what does color represent for you I guess like do you have a slight philosophical standpoint from it it's a fun one actually so I actually go diametrically opposite I think color is something that us humans attribute a lot of meaning to but that's just us (laughs) (laughs) yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I think of color, having worked on color vision on lots of animals which aren't humans, my understanding is a much more practical one, perhaps, right? Yeah. So, for example, um, fairly simple example, in, as we work in zebrafish, we, we knew they see ultraviolet light. 
Um, that wasn't new. Um, but what we found out is that they use the ability to see ultraviolet light um, to find their food. And the reason that this works is these little baby zebrafish, they're you know, a few millimeters long, they of course they eat small food. Um, so they eat plankton, basically. Yeah. And plankton is of a certain size, that's kind of how it's defined, right? If it's bigger than something, then you start calling it crustacean or something. Yeah. Um, but you still would. But anyway, that sort of size, and we're talking sub-millimeter, right? So 100 micron size organisms with, you know, dangly bits and floating around the water column. Um, but those guys, if they live in the shallow water and the sun hits them, they will scatter UV light, mm -hmm. basically like a disco ball, but not other light. It's just, the, it's just the physics of their size, basically. Yeah. Right? So if you're a baby zebrafish and you're swimming around near the surface of the water and the sun is there, you will see water, 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 and then these sparkly things. Oh, right? Okay. So you swim around and you'll eat them because they're probably food. Yeah. Right? And that is something that, is obviously, this this is evolutionary this best, yeah. right? This is something that is just, nature has given us this feature that mm. food looks UV bright. Therefore, yeah. if I'm a fish, obviously I'm going to evolve that trait because the yeah. second it evolves, it's going to give me an advantage, yeah. right? So um, does the zebrafish feel happy when it sees UV? I guess not. I don't know. Does the zebrafish feel happy, right? Does it, does it get emotional? Uh, I don't know. But it, will, mm. it uses this feature in order to find its food, Yeah. right? So um, if we now start thinking, so a bird that specializes to feed on berries might have the same for red, yeah, right? Or a butterfly with its favorite flower for God knows what combination of colors. So for these animals, color would be a practical cue. Right. And whether then they on top of that develop a sort of perceptual sort of psychology level, consciousness level representation of this color, what it means, what... Yeah forming memories associated with that. I think that's an entirely different question, whether or not animals can do that. I think I'm not qualified to answer. Yeah. I guess some animals do it better than others. But I think this very fundamental raw color just means something. It drives a behavior. I think that yeah. is something that animals cannot get away from mm. unless they are so up in the air like us humans. We don't, we don't think about, you know, oh, it's red, I must eat it. No. <laughs> you know, it, it, just, it just wouldn't be functional yeah. for our lifestyle. But, you know, yeah. um, I don't know how many generations back yeah. it would have been. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. Okay, so finally, if you could upgrade any part of your brain, which part and why? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wouldn't forget things all the time, I guess that one. <laughs> I don't know which bit that is. People tell me it's the hippocampus, but then pe memory, other people yeah. tell me it's not, you know... Cortex. Yeah. I guess the cortex does everything, okay. doesn't it? Brilliant. Well, um, thank you for coming on to Braincast. This has been really interesting. Well, so, thank you for having me. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs>